Starvel tragedy, dramatised by Alan Downer, from the novel by Freeman Wills Crofts, with Edward de Souza as Inspector French and Jonathan Tapler as Detective Constable Tanner. Inspector French and the Starvel tragedy. French. You wanted to see me, sir? Yes. How do you feel about a trip to Yorkshire? Uh, well, I, I was rather hoping for a breather, sir. Right. This is the very thing. We don't want to generally know you're making inquiries, so you can go as an angler or something. Enjoy a spot of fishing, do you? Well, November is hard. Take young Tanner with you. Well, Tanner, he's very green, sir. Exactly. Needs experience. He's eager, though, and carry your rod and line. <laughs> and uh, the nature of the case, sir? It's all in this file. May well turn out to be a mare's nest, but we've had a request from the Chief Constable of West Riding to field a strong team, so any questions? Oh, no, sir. Splendid. I've booked you in at the Thursdale Arms in Thursby. Oh, if you hurry, you can be on the 12.15 from St Pancras. Sir? Tanner. This case, sir, what's it all about? Well, you can peruse the file at your leisure later on, but I'll give you a brief summary of the facts as far as I've been able to digest them. Oh, thank you, sir. No. A few miles outside of Thursby stood, until recently, an old house called Starvel. It was occupied by its elderly owner, Simon Avril, and his orphaned niece, Ruth. Oh, and two servants, a married couple called Roper. Now, on the night of Wednesday, the 15th of September, Starvel was burnt to the ground, and Simon Avril and the Ropers perished in the flames. What about the niece? She was staying with friends in York at the time of the plays. That was lovely. Yes. There was an inquest, of course. And the verdict brought in was accidental death. Now, Simon Avril was a miter whose main interest in life appears to have been the accumulation of a fortune, all in £20 notes, which he kept in a safe in his bedroom. And all of this, with the exception of a few sovereigns, was destroyed in the fire. What a waste. Or so it was thought. Let me explain. At the end of every month, Avril kept a balance of no more than 50 to 60 pounds in his current account with the bank. Any surplus was taken out to Starville in 20 pound notes and added to the hoard in the safe. The regular monthly task of delivering this money uh, to Starville had fallen in recent years on the same clerk at the bank, one Albert Bloxall. And Bloxall, being a thorough sort of man, had been in the habit of jotting down the serial numbers. Consequently, Mr. Tarkington, the branch manager, was able to quote the numbers when informing his head office in Throckmorton Avenue of their destruction in the fire. And? Well, one of these notes has since been paid into one of the bank's branches in London. <laughs> well, you're not impressed? Well, not particularly, sir, no. I mean, surely this Mr. Avril must have paid for some things in cash. Oh, no. According to Mr. Tarkington, everything that one can think of went through Avril's current account, even the rope of salaries, and was paid for by cheque. The hoard of the safe was never drawn on. And there's something else. Mr. Tarkington is reasonably sure that the safe which contained this fortune in banknotes was fireproof. Well, he should have spoken up at the inquest. Well, he thought at the time that he must have been mistaken. Now, the affair of the £20 note has reawakened his suspicions that all is not as it first seemed. He's contacted the chief constable, and the chief constable has contacted us. 
It's not much to go on, sir. Well, sadly, no. That's why our inquiries must be discreet. At this stage, not even the local police are to be taken into our confidence. So where do you intend to start? Well, when we get to Thursby, I intend to have a little gossip with mine host at the Thursdale Arms over a tankard of ale beside a roaring fire. Aye, gentlemen, it were a real tragedy, especially for Miss Ruth. She's been left with hardly a penny to her name. So, uh, where is this Miss Ruth living now? Uh, with the Oxleys. Uh, the... He's the Admiral family solicitor. Ah. They've very kindly taken her under their wing till everything's sorted out. Uh, mind you, I did have hopes myself that someone had come of her and young Mr Wimper. But... Wimper? Aye, nice young chap. He's come to Thursby as clerk of works for the renovation of the parish church. And uh, and he and uh, Miss um, Avril had uh, an understanding? Well, they were now fixed if you take me meaning. But they were thick as thieves before the fire. Then it seemed to cool off. I suppose it was one of these lovers' quarrels. Well, there you are, gentlemen. Ah. You're very good health. Ah. Cheers. Good health, good health mm. to you. Mm. Oh. About, uh, about Miss Avril. I, I feel right sorry for her. Apart from money and the fatalities at Starble, as if that weren't bad enough, she lost another good friend the day before the fire. Oh? Aye. Mr. Giles passed on as well, and he were only 36. Uh, who, was, uh, who was Mr. Giles? Uh, lived on his own in a cottage about half a mile from Starville. Poor devil, been gassed in the war, never got over it. Decent sort, uh, a bit funny, uh, chased butterflies and such. <laughs> and, uh, and he and, he and uh, Miss Avril were, were friends? Well, let's put it this way. I think she were glad enough of his company. Oh, there were few enough pleasures for her at Starville. Old Avril were a regular skinflint. Never even bought Miss Ruth decent clothes to wear. At least she's still alive, landlord. Which is more than can be said for that unfortunate housekeeper and her husband. Oh, the Ropers, aye. Oh, they served the old man well. Mind you, Roper were close. Mm. Very close. Quiet enough and civil-spoken, but, well, sly. That's what I call it. Landlord! Oh, excuse me, gentlemen. Duty couples. Well... Mr. Tanner. Time to turn in, I think. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. French. I'm ready for my bed. And, uh, tomorrow, sir? Tomorrow, Tanner, we visit the scene of the fire. Must have been some blaze, sir. Apart from those outhouses, there's nothing left but rubble. Yeah. Small wonder they couldn't definitely identify the bodies. What do you expect to find? Well, specifically, I want to take a close look at the safe. It's never still out here, sir, is it? Tanner, had you read the transcript of the inquest more carefully, you'd know that the safe was found locked in the southern wing of the house. That'll be over there. Sergeant Kent of the local police states, when our investigations were complete, we left the safe lying in the rubbish where we found it. And I've no reason to suppose it's not still there. Yes, sir. Right. Come on. If you were to ask me... I'd say it was an accident. They had oil lamps and an oil cooker. Mr. Avril used a petrol lamp because of his failing sight. Oil and petrol were stored in the cellar. Also, according to the barmaid at the inn, Roper had been in for a drink that evening, and he was seen later by a farmer staggering back in the direction of Starville. Oh, that's all in the transcript too, sir. Uh, Touché. Oh. 
Bless you, sir. Uh -oh. Anyway, it's my belief that Roper dropped a lamp or something on his return home, and that's what... Oh! started the fire. There's one important piece of evidence that militates against that theory, Tanner, and that is that all three bodies were found where you'd expect them to be found had they been in their beds at the time of the blaze. Yes. Then perhaps Roper didn't notice he knocked a lamp over and went off to bed. Yeah, well, that's speculation. We're here to examine the facts. Oh. Yes, sir. Uh... Ah, look. There's the safe. Oh. <clears throat> You stand there while I try to get the door open. We don't want the contents being disturbed by the wind. Ah. It won't open. Well, perhaps it's locked. No, I, I don't think so. It's, it's simply that the, the hinges have rusted. Ah. Ah, here it comes. Now, let's take a look at what's inside. Dust, mostly. Churned up by the sovereigns as the safe fell through from the first floor. But there are still some flakes of paper. Uh, there's a magnifying glass and forceps in my briefcase. Would you... Um... Oh, uh, yes, sir. There's also a, a bottle of gum and some thin cards. What do we want those for? You'll see. Uh, forceps and uh, magnifying uh, glass. Thank you. Uh, I don't believe this. What, sir? There's some printing on one of these flecks of paper, but it isn't the printing of banknotes. Oh. It, it looks more like newspaper. Well, maybe you wrapped the money up. No. If it were wrapping paper, Tanner, surely it would have burned first. It is newspaper, you know. You can actually see part of the words on this piece. Uh, in as we, in small type, and below it, in capitals, Rat Catchers F. Yeah. Paste a little of the gum onto a card. There's a good chap. Quickly. Yes, sir. We're onto something here. Here you are, sir. Good. Then, uh, very gently, let's stick this fragment of paper onto the card. Uh, that's it. Anything more in there, sir? Yes. One or two larger pieces. Here's one. And it's got printing on, too. Oh, capital letters. It could be part of the name of the newspaper. Oh, yes. It looks like something... R-Y. Pass me another card. All ready, sir. Thank you. The name of a newspaper with R-Y. Oh. Can't think of anything. Oh, it may be a local journal. But one thing is certain, it's definitely not a banknote. There never were any banknotes in here, Tanner. None at all. Then it was no accident. No. We must assume that the safe was unlocked and the notes removed before the fire. Oh. Then pieces of newspaper were put in to replace them and burnt to ashes with the safe door open. Then the door was locked again. By whom, sir? That remains to be seen. Right. I think we've finished here, except I'll, I'll collect up more of the burnt fragments and bag them while you take down the make and number of the safe. Oh, very good, sir. Ah. ah. Number one, two, four, seven, three. Carter and Stevenson of Leeds. Excellent. What now, sir? I want you to go to Leeds and check with Carter and Stevenson that this safe was completely fireproof, and I mean without a shadow of doubt. Sir. Also, inquire whether there's a Leeds newspaper which has an R-Y in its title. If so, go to their offices and look through the issues of the days immediately preceding the fire. See if you can find Ing as we and Ratcatchers F. As we. Then report back to me at the inn. 
rat catchers F. That's it. Ah. What are your plans, sir? I think it's time I made the acquaintance of the local constabulary. Newspapers? That's right, Sergeant Kent. Well, I'll be... You don't happen to know what daily paper the late Mr. Avril took? Well, most folk here about read the Leeds Mercury. The Mercury, yes. I fancy that'll be it. Inspector? Yes? I hope you won't mind my asking, sir, but... Well, according to Mr. Tarkington's calculations, he's manager at bank. Mm. That safe contained... Hold on, I've, I've got it down here. Yeah, so, uh, that safe contained... Uh, here, here it is. That safe contained an estimated thirty to £40,000 in £20 notes, of which we have serial numbers for £3,860. That's 193 of Have you a list of those numbers? Oh, yes, sir. They're all noted down here. Well, I'll take them down if you don't mind. Help yourself, sir. Thank you. Y you see... What I'm trying to get at is, well, if that safe contained nobbit newspapers, what happened to old money? Well, we must suppose, Sergeant Kent, that someone took it. You mean burglars? Well, Starvel was an invitation to burglars being so isolated. Ah. And I gather that most people locally knew of the existence of Avril's Hoard. Well, you've had burglaries in the neighbourhood too, sir, several of them. But no trace of miscreants, I'm sorry to say. Did they burn down house and all, do you reckon? It's possible. Why? They've never done that before. I don't usually indulge in speculation, Sergeant, but let's assume the following. The burglars have broken open the safe when something unexpected happened. Like they're surprised by Roper, for example. Quite. And in the resulting disturbance, Roper is killed, possibly even by accident. The intruders would then be fighting for their lives as well as their fortunes, and in what better way could they do it than murder the other members of the household, lay all three of them in their beds and burn the house down? Robbery? Arson? Cold... Bloodied murder? Oh, if that's so, sir, we'd be dealing with one of the most dastardly crimes of the century. Yes, Sergeant. I'm very much afraid we would. It's me, sir. Good news, sir. Ah. Well? First, sir... As to the fragments of newspaper... Yeah, they were from the Leeds Mercury. Yes, sir. How did you know, sir? Oh, uh, one, one, one has one's sources. To carry on. Yes, sir. Mm. The words Rat Catcher's Fatal Fall appear in the edition of 14th of September. Ah, the day before the fire. Yes, sir. And the same? Mr. Stevenson of Carter and Stevenson is prepared to stake his reputation on the fact that the safe was completely fireproof, and he'll stand by that in any court of law. Well done. Not a bad day's work, was it, sir? I reckon I've earned my supper. Yes, you could have it on the train. Why? Where am I going? Back to London. Oh. On a very important errand. Oh. You see, there's but one channel now to be explored, and it offers a very poor chance of success. The £20 note. Ah. Earlier on, I spoke to the manager at the headquarters of the Northern Shires Bank in Throgmorton Avenue, and he, having checked with the clerk who received the note, suggested it was probably paid in by the messenger from Thomas Cook's in Regent Street. No certainty, but uh, sporting chance. So, first thing tomorrow morning, I want you to go to that office and see what you can discover. I'm sorry, Mr. Tanner, but I simply don't see how we can help you trace the bank note in question. Oh. In the first place... We don't know the numbers of any of the banknotes which passed through our hands. Oh, I see. What is more, even if we did know, we couldn't possibly tell you who paid that money in, since so much comes in over the counter. And then, 
we have no idea of the date upon which we received this note. That's if we did receive it. We think you lodged it yesterday week. If we lodged it at all. Uh, perhaps if I could look over your receipts for some time prior to yesterday week, mm -hmm. I might find a name and address which would suggest a line of inquiry. Very well. How far back do you wish to go? A little over five weeks. From Friday 10th of September to Monday 18th of October. If you insist. Rather a job, eh? <laughs> that, Mr Tanner, is your funeral. Please to come this way. How do you take your tea? Oh, uh, with one sugar, please, Mrs Oxley. Oh. There. Thank you. Ruth, dear, pass Mr French a biscuit. Oh, yes. Ah. Oh. How kind... Mr. French, I don't quite understand why Scotland Yard should show interest in the fire. I mean, since it was an accident. Well, some new evidence has recently come to light, Miss Avril, and it's, it's our job to ensure that all avenues are explored, especially if it would mean that your inheritance is restored to you. Hmm. I'm not sure how I can help you. Well, perhaps by telling me about yourself, your life at Starville, how you came to be there. Very well. I was born in Bayonne in southern France. Oh. My parents died when I was very young, and I came to live with my uncle Simon at Starville. Were you happy there? Well, I'm... You can be honest, my dear. In the early years, yes. I was away at school for much of the time, and at Starville, the Potters, an elderly couple who looked after my uncle, were kind enough in their way, but when they left about 18 months ago and the Ropers came, one has no wish to speak ill of the dead, Inspector. You, uh, you didn't get on with the Ropers? If... I may. Yes, Mrs. Oxley. My husband had dealings with Roper from time to time. He found his manner to be sneering and satirical. It seems he could never refrain from making caustic remarks. It made him a lot of enemies. Perhaps one should say, in his defence, that he was unhappy in his marriage. Mrs. Roper had a very sharp tongue and was always nagging at him. Did you ever hear them quarrelling? Oh, yes. She would shout angrily. He would reply... Quietly in his Scottish brogue, he hailed from somewhere in Fife, I believe, and say the most dreadful things. For instance? Well, once I heard him say, I'll swing for you one of these days. It was hateful. I had to put my hands over my ears. I see. Miss Avril, there is evidence to suggest that Roper had been drinking prior to the fire. Did he habitually do so? Oh, on the contrary. He was most abstemious. Ah. He'd take the occasional glass of whiskey for medicinal purposes, but that was all. Hmm. Um, what about your uncle? Were you on good terms with him? My uncle was never approachable. And as he grew older, he became almost a recluse. All he lived for was money. He was an invalid and suffered quite a lot of pain. You didn't see much of him, then? If he hadn't required me to read to him once a day, I would hardly have seen him at all. So, how did you fill your time? Uh, Mr. Wimper would call occasionally. He's a very pleasant young man. <laughs> He's supervising the restoration work at the parish church. Also, I used to go on little expeditions onto the moors with a neighbour who was an entomologist. Ah, oh, that would be uh, Mr. Giles? Yes. Poor Markham. He died the day before the fire. Heart trouble, aggravated by influenza. You would say then, Miss Avril, that you lived a fairly solitary existence. Yes, I suppose I did. Your visit to York, then, was an exceptional event. Oh, yes. How did it come about? 
Roper brought me a note from a Mrs. Palmer Gore, explaining that it had been enclosed in a letter to my uncle. It said that she and my father had been old friends, that the autumn flower show opened that Wednesday, and would I like to go over and spend a few days. Roper said my uncle hoped I would accept the invitation, and since there would be expense in connection with the visit, wished me to have ten pounds, which were enclosed in another envelope. Well, that was generous of him. Yes. <laughs> I could scarcely believe my eyes. I dimly remembered Mrs. Palmer Gore from my childhood and was thrilled at the prospect of seeing her again. <laughs> and ten whole pounds. <laughs> what one could buy with it? <laughs> I wanted to go up and thank my uncle at once. And would have, had not Roper dissuaded me. Now, why should he do that? My uncle had been ailing for several days. Roper didn't think it wise to disturb him. Didn't you see your uncle at all before your departure? Oh, yes. The following morning, I went in to say goodbye. But unfortunately, he was asleep. I didn't think he looked at all well. He was breathing heavily and his face had a greyish pallor. So I decided not to wake him. I mentioned to Roper that he should send for the doctor. And he said he had already done so. But Dr. Philpot was also ill with influenza, and a visit to Starva wouldn't be possible for the next few days. Dr. Philpot regularly attended your uncle? Yes, over the last few years. Mm. Dr. Emerson, the senior partner in the practice, has retired in all but name. I see. Miss Avril, to return to the day you set off for York, mm. after you'd looked in on your uncle, what did you do next? Mrs. Roper and I went to visit Markham Giles. He looked far from well, too. In fact, he was so listless, he barely seemed to notice us, though he said he was quite comfortable and wanted nothing. After that, I went into Thursby and did some shopping and ate a light lunch at a restaurant. It was there I met Mrs Oxley. <laughs> and after lunch? Mrs Oxley said she was going to the church. The sexton had promised me some old flagstones for my garden. There was an hour remaining to train time, so I decided to go with her. Oh, well, go on. I talked to Mr. Wimper for ten minutes or so, then, as he had some business at the station, he kindly accompanied me there and saw me onto the train. Mr. French, I cannot imagine what this has to do with the fire. Quite so, Miss Avril. Thank you both. You've been very helpful. Thought I shouldn't delay in reporting in, sir. That's uh, all right, Anna. What is it? My researches have met with success. Ah. There's no question you passed that note. Who? I have the item in question in front of me. It says, October the 5th, Pierce Wimper, Oakland's Bolton Road, Leeds, £16.8 and fourpence. Wimper? That's right, sir. Took me all day to find it, but here it is in black and white. Well, that seems to be the end of that, then. Presumably Wimper had been out to Starville before the fire, and Avril had given him the £20 for some purpose of his own. Well, it's possible, but I followed up the transaction, and all the details stood revealed. Yeah. On Saturday, 18th of September, that's uh, the day of the inquest, I believe, yes, that's right. Mr Wimper wrote to Cooks asking for the cost of a second-class return ticket from London to Talois in France. Two days later, Wimper wrote again, asking them to provide the tickets. He called for them on the afternoon of Wednesday, 6th of October, and paid with the £20 note. A receipt was duly made out for £16.8 and fourpence, which included three days' poncian at the Hotel Splendid in Annecy. Well done, Tanner. Yes, well, I must call on Mr. Wimper. I can ask everything I want in a single question, Mr. Wimper. Where did you get the £20 note with which you paid for your trip to Annecy? Uh, it, it probably came in my pay. Oh, you, you, you get your pay in notes? Sometimes. 
On the other hand, I may have got it from my father. He, he makes me an allowance. Now, think carefully, Mr. Wimper. This matter is more serious than you perhaps realise. Mr. French, I've had the note for a long time, and I honestly do not know how it came into my possession. How, um, how often did you go up to Starville? Oh, I was only there half a dozen times in my life. To see Mr. Avril? No, I, I've never seen Mr. Avril. I, I went at Miss Avril's invitation. Ah. Or on the chance of seeing her. And when were you last there? Some appreciable time ago. Within a week of the fire? No. You met Miss Avril here the day before the fire, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. She came in with Mrs. Oxley. I uh, saw her to the station. Did she give you the £20 note? She, she did nothing of the kind. Mr. Wimper, was Miss Avril the only member of the Starville household with whom you communicated during the week before the fire? Well? I, I'm thinking. Uh, no, I met Roper, Mr. Avril's valley and general man, here, just outside the church gate on the evening of the fire. We met by chance and merely wished each other good evening. At what hour was that? Uh, at about half past five. I was leaving work for the night. And you assure me that you had no other communication with any member of the Starville household during the period in question? None. Nor received any message through any third party? No. Mr. Wimper, I know that the £20 note in question was in Mr. Avril's safe five days before the fire. You will have to explain how it came into your possession, if not to me, then later on in court. Now, think. Wouldn't you rather tell me here in private than have it dragged out of you in the witness box? I have nothing to tell, Mr. French. Ah. The innkeeper said I was to be sure to look in on you, sir. <sighs> no matter how late. Yes, Anna, come on in. Good journey. Tolerable, sir, thank you. I had some light refreshment on the train. Mm -hmm. oh, do sit down. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> oh, did you talk to Mr. Wimper? Yes, but sadly to little effect. Oh. However, a very short while ago, I did pay a brief visit to his lodgings while the occupant was out and discovered in his desk a roll of 20-pound notes. Crikey. 24 of them. I made a list of the numbers. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to compare them with this list, which I obtained from Sergeant Kent. I think we may find that they're from the safe at Starville. Gladly, sir. Won't take but a moment. Mm. Yes? Sergeant Kent, sir. Ah, come in, Sergeant. I, uh, apologise for lateness of hour. No, no, no. No need. As you see, we're both still hard at work. What can I do for you? There's been a development, sir. No? Aye. A week or so ago, Postmaster delivered to me a letter addressed to the heirs and assigns of the late Mr. John Roper. Mm -hmm. uh, since it occurred to him that the same might have a bearing on tragedy. Uh, I have it here, sir. As you will see, sir, it's from the Metropolitan Safe Deposit Company Limited, 25B King William Street, in the city. Yes. Hmm. <clears throat> well, then. Dear sir or madam, we beg to bring to your notice that the late Mr. John Roper was the holder of a small safe in our strong rooms. <laughs> we should be glad to receive your instructions as to the disposal of its contents, yours faithfully, etc. Oh, well, 
Why should a man in Roper's position require the services of a safe deposit account? I wondered the same thing, sir. So I wrote to King William Street requesting that they forthwith forward to me the contents of the box. Now, their reply reached me by the afternoon mail along with this sealed letter, which I now put into your care. And um, this is all that was in the box? Yes, sir, so it would appear. Then let's see what it says. Sir? Yes, Tanner? Eighteen of the numbers are on the list. Ah, that seems fairly conclusive. Hmm. Now then, um, what's all this? Hmm. Well, well. Has it a bearing not tragedy, sir? Possibly, Sergeant, possibly. At this juncture, it's difficult to say. Oh. But, um, thank you for all your efforts. Oh. And, yeah. um, I, uh... I bid you good night. Ah, well, uh, good night, gentlemen. Something interesting, sir. Listen to this. The address at the top is Brayside, Kintillock, Fife, and it's dated the 15th of May, 1921. That's more than five years ago. Now, listen. I, Herbert Philpot, doctor of medicine, and at present assistant on the staff of the Morham Institute in this town, under compulsion and in the hope of avoiding exposure, hereby remorsefully confess that I am guilty of attempting the death of my wife, Edna Philpot, <sighs> by arranging that she should meet with an accident, and when this merely rendered her unconscious, of killing her by striking her on the temple with a cricket bat. Crikey! May God have mercy on me. Signed, Herbert Philpot. Th that's the local quack, isn't it? He bears the same name. Uh, a confession of murder, eh? But what was it doing in Roper's strongbox? I've no idea. It smacks of blackmail to me. Tanner, bitter experience has taught me never to jump to conclusions. Yeah, but I... Phil Pot must wait. Our first priority must be to get the truth out of Whimper. We'll tackle him at the church, first thing tomorrow morning. We're just resetting the mullions. Come into the vestry room. I use it as an office. We won't be disturbed. Mr. Wimper, in your desk at your lodgings in Stanhope Road are £480 in £20 notes. You search my desk? How dare you? I'll complain There is no doubt that these particular notes, along with the one you cashed at Thomas Cook's, were all in the safe at Starville shortly before the fire. Now, where did you obtain that money? I've nothing to say. Very well. A charge, Mr. Wimper, Tanner. What? Yes, sir. What with, sir? Robbery, arson, what? murder. What? Yes, sir. Then we'll take him into custody. One moment. Yes, Mr. Wimper? I assure you, Inspector, I didn't steal the money. And as for murder, what... Then how did the money come into your hands? I can see I must tell you the truth. Take this down, Tanner. Yes, sir. As I told you yesterday, Mr. French, as I left the church on the evening of the fire, I saw Roper outside the gate. He came up and he said he had a message for me from Mr. Avril. He said Mr. Avril would have written, but he wasn't very well. The message was that Mr. Avril wanted to see me on very urgent business. He requested that I come out to Starville that night at about eight o'clock and, and be sure not to mention my visit to anyone. Go on. Well, when I got to Starville, Roper explained that Mr. Avril was feeling too ill to see me. He had, however, written me a note. Roper then handed me a rather bulky envelope. Containing the £20 note? Yes. And a scribbled note from Mr. Avril. I don't recall the exact words. He, he said he was sorry, but he felt too unwell to undertake what must be a painful interview, and he didn't wish to put the facts in writing. 
He said Roper was entirely in his confidence and would explain it, and that well, since I would need money for what he was going to ask me to do, he was enclosing £500, to which he would add a further sum if I found I required it. Have you got that, Tanner? Uh, yes, sir. Just about. Roper then went on to tell me a certain story. I can only say it, it's quite impossible for me to repeat it. But it involved a visit to France? Yes. I agreed to undertake the mission and took the notes. The house burnt down that night and Mr. Avril died. Nevertheless, I thought it my duty to go to France and, and did so a few weeks later. Was your mission successful? Unfortunately not. Therefore, the trip cost me only my travelling expenses and I was left with £480 of Mr. Avril's money on my hands. I see. I decided to keep this and go out again to France at a later date and have another try at the business. That is the money which you found in my desk. Well, Mr. Quimper, that could be the truth, but I have to tell you this. No jury on the face of this earth would believe it. You must tell us the exact nature of your mission to France. I'm sorry, I can't. It's not my secret. I wonder if you quite understand your position, Mr. Quimper. It has been established that some person or persons went to Starville on the evening we're speaking of, murdered Mr. Avril, Roper and his wife, stole Mr. Avril's fortune and then set fire to the house. So oh. far as we know, you alone visited the house that night. You admit having done so. Furthermore, some of the stolen money has been found in your possession. And yet, when I give you the chance to account for your actions, you won't take it. Do you not understand, Mr. Wimper? that if you persist in this foolish attitude, you will be charged with murder. So why didn't you? Hmm? Arrest him for murder. Tanner, I have the distinct feeling he's innocent. And if he isn't? Well, the way I see it is this. If this secret, whatever it is, was something discreditable affecting Miss Avril, wouldn't that account for Whimper's refusal to reveal it? Could be. On the other hand... He could be hiding information about the crime. He could be shielding the murderer. He could even have come along after the crime and finding proof of the murderer's identity have set fire to the house with the object of destroying the evidence. Speculation, all of it. Oh. But even if any of this were true, it would be a serious blunder to arrest him. That would merely prevent him from doing something by which he would give himself away. For example, attempting to communicate with an accomplice. You, uh, want him what, sir? Closely. Very good, sir. But Sergeant Ken can do that. Well, what about me, sir? You, Tanner, will be going to France. Eh? To Talois. Following in Whimper's footsteps. <laughs> Doesn't the prospect please you, Tanner? Foreign travel broadens the mind. Well, it's not so much my mind that bothers me, sir. It's my stomach. <laughs> What's more, I don't speak the lingo. Regarded as a challenge. Oh, I'll do my best, sir. Where will you be? Checking in Dr. Philpott's background. Oh. Then, it's back to Scotland Yard to report to Chief Inspector Mitchell. Sit down, friend. Thank you, sir. Well, are you making any progress? Not a great deal, sir, I'm afraid. However, we are pursuing two lines of inquiry. And they are? Well, I've spoken to you briefly about Pierce Wimper. Yeah. But there's also this... A confession in which Dr. Herbert Philpot admits murdering his wife, Edna Philpot. Does he indeed? It was found in the safe deposit box of Simon Averill's servant, Roper. Oh. Now, I've established from the medical directory 
that Herbert Philpott is the same man who treated Avril. I see. Now, the directory shows that between 1913 and September 1921, when he set up practice for himself in Thursby, Philpott was working as junior assistant at the Morham Mental Institution at Kintillock, Scotland. The date on this is 15th of May, 1921. Yes, that was four months before Philpott left for Thursby. Go on. At the offices of the Scotsman in Fleet Street, I searched the files for news of a fatal accident to a Mrs. Edna Philpott at Kintillock. And? I found it sooner than I expected. On the 17th of May, two days after the date on that confession, there was this short paragraph. Tragic death of a doctor's wife. As you see, it recounts how the deceased lady in some way tripped while descending the stairs at her home. She and her husband were alone in the house at the time. He heard her fall and rushed to her aid. But despite all his efforts, she passed away in a few minutes. Hmm. The death certificate reads, death from concussion resulting from a fall. Were the local police satisfied? Apparently not. But having gone into the matter more fully than would otherwise have been the case, and having discovered no suspicious circumstances, they dropped their inquiries. So, why the confession? And how did he come to be in Roper's strongbox? I'm coming to that, sir. According to Sergeant MacGregor at Cantillac, I've spoken to him at length on the telephone, Roper was for six years an attendant at the Morham Institute working directly under Dr. Philpot. Also... Yeah. Again, according to Sergeant MacGregor, Roper was courting a certain Flora McFarlane at that time and married her soon after. And Flora McFarlane was the Philpott's maid. Further, it's interesting to note that though this young lady claims to have been out of the house at the time of the accident, she did return unexpectedly minutes later and heard Dr. Philpott telephoning for help. But... If, in fact, she had actually witnessed the crime... Now, you're suggesting that Roper used his fiancée's knowledge to blackmail Philpot. That's the way it looks. It would certainly account for the confession being in Roper's strongbox. It might even account for the Roper's arrival in Thursby 18 months ago. Do we know why Roper left Kintillac? Yes. He was found to have given troublesome patients unauthorised drugs to keep them quiet. On the first occasion, he was led off the caution. On the second, he was instantly dismissed. Whereupon he went to work for Avril. Yes, rather to everyone's surprise. Mm. He let it be generally known in Quintillac that he intended to start a new life in Brazil. He'd even obtained a passport and a Brazilian visa. Something must have happened to make him change his mind. Uh, returning to uh, Philpot, have we any evidence at all to associate him with the crime at Starville? None, sir. In fact, all the evidence suggests... He was in bed with influenza at the time. His associate, Dr. Emerson, states he had a temperature of 102. Mm. And your other line of inquiry, this uh, whimper business? Isn't bearing much fruit either, I regret to say. Tanner's report from Anorsi confirms that our prime suspect, Pierce Whimper, arrived at the Hotel Splendide on Friday the 8th of October and left there three days later on Monday the 11th. On Saturday the 9th of October, Whimper took a steamer to the village of Talois, where... He inquired widely about the whereabouts of a Monsieur Prosper Giraud and a Madame Madeleine Blancard. His search was unsuccessful, so he then went to the local gendarmerie and offered a reward of 5,000 francs for information as to the whereabouts of either. And what do you conclude from that? Well, I'm just guessing, sir, but the more I consider the whole affair, the more I feel that there's some secret in the Avril family, a secret so sinister that Wimper is willing to chance arrest rather than reveal it. One must assume, if that's the case, that the secret concerns but one person, Ruth Avril.
She was born in Bayonne in southern France. There may be some question about her parentage. I'm making inquiries now. I see. You're still having him watched? Oh, yes, sir. Then I think a call on Dr. Philpott's in order, don't you? See what the man has to say. I'm accused of what? Murdering your wife, Dr. Philpott. At your home in Brayside, Kintillock, on the afternoon of the 15th of May, 1921. And I have information to support the charge. What does it consist of? A statement which alleges that you arranged the accident which befell your wife, and then when this didn't kill her, as you'd hoped and intended, that you <laughs> then struck her on the temple with a cricket bat. A cricket bat? Which did kill her. Now... Will you give me an explanation, or would you prefer to reserve your statement until you've consulted a solicitor? Ask your questions, and I'll answer them, if I can. Good. Dr. Philpott, did you ever admit to anyone that you had committed this murder? Never. Then how did you come to write this? Aren't you going to read it? Or is it that you recognize the document and know its contents already? Roper is somehow at the bottom of this, isn't he? Even after his death, his evil genius remains. What do you mean? Inspector, did you know that Roper worked under me at the Murrum Mental Institute in Kintillock? Yes, I did. Well, one day I found Roper with his arms round one of the nurses, and I said I would report him. However, when he spoke up on the girl's behalf, pointing out that she was good at her job, kindly and attentive, I decided, after all, to take no further action. And from that moment... Roper hated me. I could see it in his eyes. Go on. Uh, in May 1914, I, I married and set up house in Ben Brayside. Then came the war. I joined the army in 1915 and was invalided out two years later and, and returned to my job at the Institute. After two years at the front, I, I was a changed man. Although I still dearly loved my wife, I... I found I was strongly attracted to other women. And so it happened that I in turn became guilty of the very offence about which I'd threatened Roper. I formed a liaison with a nurse at the Institute. We used to meet at night in the grounds, and one night, by fate's irony, he found her in my arms. <laughs> The price of his silence was ten shillings a week. You paid him? Well, I had no choice. It was my reputation, my career to consider, and my poor wife. I took the coward's way out. To ensure continued payment, Roper said he must have a, a guarantee. In what form? Well, he insisted I write and sign a statement to the effect that I had been carrying on an intrigue with nurse so-and-so at the Institute. I finally submitted even to this humiliation. And he said he'd keep the statement hidden as long as the money was paid. If it wasn't, he would send the note to the institution authorities. It would have meant my instant dismissal. How long did these payments continue? until my wife died. About a week after the funeral, Roper called at my house and said he was sure I would see that his knowledge had now become vastly more valuable. How so? He said the police suspected me of murdering my wife, but weren't able to show a strong enough motive to take the case into court. 
But if he were to come forward and relate the incident with the nurse... I see. So, I asked him his price. It was two pounds a week. I agreed to pay it. However, I flatly refused to write him a confession of the crime which he said he required as a guarantee. I refused to avow a crime of which I was not guilty and dared him to do his worst. Whereupon... Yes? He... He took two photographs out of his pocket. One was an extraordinarily clear copy of my confession of the intrigue with the nurse, the other a copy of that document you brought, which he brazenly admitted he'd forged. You mean to say this is a forgery? Examine it closely and you'll see. Compare it with other samples of my handwriting. This. Or this. Huh? Let your experts examine it. Oh, there's a, a superficial resemblance, yes, but that's all. Inspector French, you have my word that I did not write that letter. Say you believe me. Please. Yes. Doctor, I... I rather think I do. Thank God. You left Kintillac soon afterwards, Dr. Philpot. Yes. Life there had become intensely painful to me. I resigned and set up my plate here, here in Thursbury. But every week I sent two treasury notes to Roper. What brought Roper and his wife to Thursbury? Well, the, the elderly couple who had been looking after Mr. Averill retired. He advertised for a married couple to take their place. That was about oh, 18 months ago. I received a letter from Roper saying that he had seen the advertisement and wished to apply. He asked me to put in a good word for him with Mr. Averill. Well, surely he refused. No. But Roper also said that if he got the job, he would cease his demand for the two pounds a week and send me the note he had forged. I see. Mr. Averill was my patient by this time, and I mentioned Roper to him. I, I felt I could do so with a clear conscience, for, well, with all his faults, Roper was an excellent attendant. Also, his wife, Flora, was a hard worker, and I, I believed they would suit Mr. Averill well. However, I did warn Mr. Averill that Roper had been sacked from the Murrum and gave him the reason why. And that didn't put him off? Oh, no. He thought, for that very reason, he could get them cheaper. Ah, I see. They were engaged the following week. Hmm. And uh, was Roper as good as his word? Yes, sir. So it seemed. He handed me the forged note and he watched me put it in the fire. But it seems he kept a copy. Hmm. But the blackmail stopped? Yes. From then to the day of his death, he was civil when we met and no unpleasant subjects were touched on. That inspector is the whole truth of this unhappy affair. And do you believe him, sir? Experts of the Yard have confirmed the confession was a forgery. Yeah, but who's going to pay blackmail for fear of a forged confession? Oh, I might have done so myself, Tanner. If it spared me the misery of arrest and possible trial. Besides, the episode of the nurse would have come out and Philpott's career would have been ruined. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I think his story is true. Uh, we must go back to the beginning. Review the circumstances in detail. 
I think more clearly. If I could take a breather, sir. No, yes, well, why not? I wouldn't mind a pipe. We'll, oh. Uh, yes, we'll, we'll shelter in that hollow. Come along. Yes, sir. To my mind, Tanner, all, all roads lead to Roper, <coughs> who, from every point of view, seems to have been a thorough paced blackguard. But, uh, you all right? Yes, sir. Mm. A clever rascal, too. Look how he wormed his way into Avril's confidence. <coughs> it's almost incredible that Avril should have entrusted a man like Roper with a secret which Wimper would risk a murder charge rather than reveal. <coughs> Perhaps he didn't, sir. Hmm? Well, I mean, Roper forged Philpott's writing well enough. Why shouldn't he have forged... For forged Avril's, too. <coughs> right. Tanner. Right. Well done. Mm. Let's pursue that thought. Wimper never saw Avril. He saw Roper, and only Roper. It was Roper who told him Avril wished to see him at Starville the evening of the fire. Secretly. No one was to know of the visit. And at the house, it was Roper who handed him a note, purporting to be from Avril, stating that Roper would appraise him of the details of the mission to Talwar. Yes. <laughs> By heaven. It's possible that Roper forged that letter, too. But it wouldn't have been difficult. Wimper wouldn't have been familiar with Avril's handwriting. So, Roper could have engineered the whole thing. But why should Roper send Wimper to France? I don't know. Hmm. Well, possibly as a means of establishing whether the numbers of the banknotes were known, whether it was safe to pass them. Obviously, he couldn't do so himself or make inquiries at the bank without arousing suspicion. So he arranged for someone else to do it for him. Wimper. Well, why not? I mean, he knew how Wimper felt about Ruth and had some acquaintance with the Avril family affairs. Wimper's rather an unworldly young man, you know. Roper could easily have invented some story to make him his dupe. And the 500 pounds? Well, if Roper is our man, one cannot avoid the assumption that he had stolen it from Avril's safe. Sir, the old man was in bed in the same <coughs> room. Ah, well, Roper could already have murdered him. Crikey. Or drugged him. I mean, Rover was dismissed from the Morum for drugging patients. He could have, he could have given Avril the same treatment. If you don't mind my saying, sir, it's all speculation. Yes, I'm afraid it is. And there's a major snag. What's that, sir? If Roper took the banknotes from the safe, then it was presumably Roper who replaced them with newspapers and set fire to them, signifying his intention to cover his tracks by later setting fire to the house. Yes. Well, how on earth could so clever a man as Roper have allowed himself and his wife to be caught in the fire he'd arranged for Avril? Sir. Well? There's a flaw in our reasoning. What? One thing Roper can't afford is the invitation to Miss Ruth from Mrs. Palmer Gore. Ah, so, it's back to work, Tanner. We must verify our facts. We'll divide our forces. I shall go to the church to drag the truth out of Wimper, while you... I know, sir. I get a day's outing to York. Sure you won't have one, Mr. T uh, Tanner. Tanner. Uh, not on duty, madam. <laughs> oh, well. <clears throat> Mrs. Palmer Gore? Mm. Uh, Mrs. Palmer Gore, 
would you tell me just why you invited Ruth Averill here to your home some eight weeks ago? Oh, well, Mr. Tanner, <laughs> I could scarcely have done anything else. Oh. Mr. Averill's note was raised in such a way it would have been trolled for a few. Oh, uh, Mr. Averill wrote you a note? Oh, yes. Well, he, he wrote to say he had no wish to presume on an old friendship. But would I invite Ruth over for a day or two? Uh, if she'd benefit from a few days of cheerful society. <laughs> I agreed, of course. Mrs. Palmagore, mm. your um, friendship with Averill, would you describe it as close? I do mean. We'd known each other as children. Though I was always closer to his brother, Theodore, who <laughs> more than he. Uh, so you were surprised when uh, Simon Averill wrote asking you to put his niece up? I was amazed. His letter was totally unexpected. Uh, Mrs. Palmer Gore, hmm? uh, have you by any chance kept that letter? Yeah, say not. I was destroyed on some letters. But you recognised Mr. Averill's handwriting? Well, we only exchanged Christmas cards, Mr. Tanner. <laughs> yes. I thought I did. Why'd you ask? You never suspected the letter might be a forgery? No, never. However, it would explain a great deal. I confess, I can hardly imagine Simon writing such a note. <laughs> he was a proud man. Would have been totally out of character. I won't waste any time, Mr. Whimper. Let me take you back to the evening of the fire. You'd gone to Starville at Roper's request, and when you got there, he handed you a note, ostensibly, from Mr. Avril. Yes. Suppose I were to suggest that Roper forged that note, and that Mr. Avril knew nothing whatever about it. Uh, and the story Roper told me, the reason I went to France. Pure invention. I'd like to believe you, Inspector. All right, Mr. Pimper, tell me this. If Roper's story, whatever it was, was true... Wouldn't you have met someone in the village of Talois who'd heard of Monsieur Giraud and uh, Madame Madeleine Blancard? How, how do you know about them? I never mentioned them. You did to the police at Talois. You even offered a reward of 5,000 francs for information concerning their whereabouts. You're suggesting they don't exist? I am. I believe them to be a figment of Roper's imagination. But I need proof. I must hear the whole of your story. And if you won't speak, I shall have to get the information from Miss Averill, for I'm sure... The business concerns her. In the strictest confidence, then? I give you my word. Very well. The information Roper gave me was about Miss Averill. Ah. He was very plausible. Oh, I'm sure. He began by asking me, with apologies, whether Mr. Averill was correct in believing that uh, I loved and wished to marry Miss Averill. I said I did. Roper then told me the following story. He said that Mr. Averill had a brother, Theodore, who had been, as a young man, successfully in business as the French representative of a large firm. He had married a French lady, and they had had one child, a daughter, Ruth. Ah, yes, go on. Unfortunately, so Roper said, Theodore became increasingly wild in his ways, and he was caught cheating in some illicit gambling rooms in London. A man was killed. It was never known who fired the shot, but uh, Theodore was suspected. At all events, he disappeared and was never seen again. Broken-hearted by this turn of events, his wife committed suicide, and Ruth came to live with her uncle at Starville. Hmm. Simon Averill believed his brother to be dead, but then, according to Roper, 
He suddenly received a letter from him in early September of this year. Theodore wrote that he was living at Tawar under the name of Prosper Giro. He explained that he had been in poor health for some time, suffering from bouts of fever, an illness he had picked up while serving in the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> and that in this delirium, he had said something in the presence of his housekeeper. Madeleine Blancard. Which gave his secret away. And she demanded money to keep silent? Yes. Whereupon Theodore wrote to Simon begging for money, pointing out that if he didn't oblige, then he, Theodore, would be brought to England, tried and possibly executed, and Simon and Ruth would have to bear the shame. I believed him, Mr. French. Ah, no discredit to you, Mr. Wimper. It seems Roper had a way with words. My mission at Tower was, of course, to buy off Madame Blancard. And when I could find no trace of either her or Giro, I, I was pretty bothered for Ruth's sake. I expected every day to read of Theodore's arrest and, and could do nothing to prevent it. If, as you say, you were in love with the young lady and anxious to protect her from trouble with this Madame Blanca, wouldn't the most natural thing have been to propose oh, to her? I only wish I had, but I was upset by this whole affair and it made me awkward and self-conscious with her, whereupon she grew cold and distant with me. And then when you came, threatening to arrest me... Well, <laughs> I see no need to arrest you, Mr. Wimper. And as to Roper's story, I have made inquiries with the French police concerning Miss Avril's parentage. The truth is that her mother died while giving birth to Ruth in July 1906, and her father died four years later. I have copies of the various certificates. Marry her, Mr. Wimper. She's a lovely girl. Tana. Oh. I'm awake. Here I am now. It's me. I need to talk to you. Oh. I haven't got to go anywhere, have I? No, no it's nothing like that. No, I, I couldn't sleep. Oh. I've been thinking about the case. Tanner, suppose, just suppose, that Roper isn't dead. Oh. Sir, we've been through all this before. His body was found in the ruins, along with two others. Three bodies were found, Tanner, yes, but all unrecognisable. Dr. Emerson testified at the inquest that the bodies were those of an elderly male, Simon Averill, and a middle-aged male and female, Mr. and Mrs. Roper. Averill, yes, Mrs. Roper, yes, but not necessarily her husband. Look, sir, I'm sorry, but Bear I... Bear with me. Oh. The case we've built up against Roper is flawless. We have the evidence of Dr. Philpott that the man was capable of forgery, and we've established that he did forge letters to get Miss Avril to York and Whimper to Talwar. Mm. We know he was dismissed from the Morham for drugging patients. Mm. He was capable, therefore, of administering a fatal overdose to Simon Avril. We know from the testimony of Miss Avril that he was on bad terms with his wife and said he would swing for her. Excuse me, sir. Yes. You're not suggesting that Roper murdered his own wife? The conclusion is inescapable. He was on bad terms with his wife. But what better opportunity than this to get rid of her? Two birds with one stone. Three. Hey? Roper needed three bodies to be found in the ruins. Avril's, Mrs. Roper's, and one that could be mistaken for his own. So who was victim number three? I don't know yet for certain, but I think it was Markham Giles. Markham Giles murdered? Yes, Dr. Hilford. Is that a possibility, do you think? Well, yes. 
Mr. Giles had been suffering from myocarditis for a number of years, and there were complications. Under the circumstances, my colleague, Dr. Emerson, decided not to ask for an autopsy, but issued a death certificate there and then. I suppose foul play is not out of the question. Thank you, Dr. Philpott. Oh, and um, if anything else occurs to me, I'll contact you again, if I may. Oh, you'll uh, need to be quick, Inspector. I'm leaving Thursby almost at once. For good. Uh, what? I failed, Mr. French. Financially, you mean? Of course, financially. How else? The only things I've got plenty of are bills. Bills everywhere. <laughs> no money to meet them. No, I'm sorry. Oh, it's my own stupid fault. Just lately, I've been backing too many losers. May I ask where you're going? Glasgow. I have a friend there who says he can find me a job. Of a sort. Have you an address at which I can reach you? Oh, yes. Uh, I shall be in lodgings uh, with uh, Mrs. McIntosh mm -hmm. at 47 Kilgore Street, yeah. off the Dumbarton Road. Right. Thank you, Dr. Philpott. Oh, um, there is just one more thing. Yes, Inspector. Do you know where Mr. Giles is buried? Yes, at the old cemetery on the outskirts of the town. Exhumation's a serious business, French. I realise that, sir. I see no other course. And if you open up this coffin, what do you expect to find? Money. Hmm? To be specific, sir, a fortune in £20 notes. Penny for them, sir. Hmm? Oh, nothing, Tanner, just... Just a moment of doubt. Ah, they're down to the coffin. Yes. What if we're wrong, sir? What if Giles's body is in there? It won't be. Well, look, proper idiots if it is. In front of the magistrate and the home office doctor and everything. Stop worrying, Tanner. Oh. I've never seen a dead body before, sir. And you won't now. Pass us ropes down, Percy. Aye. Nearly there now, Inspector. Yes. Oh. It was sad about Mr. Giles. Of course, he knew he were dying. Oh? Aye. He even left £12 with ropers, but funeral costs. With the ropers? Oh, well, they were his nearest neighbours. Oh, drat. What is it now, Tanner? I've got some of this mud on my shoes. Oh, and it's come off on my trousers. It'll brush off when it dries. It's bright yellow. Oh, you, you get it round here about three to four feet down. <laughs> Sergeant, are you saying that the ropers made the funeral arrangement? Oh, he did. Uh, Mr. Giles died late on Tuesday. Roper called on to undertake her on Wednesday morning. The morning of the fire? Aye, and he gave instructions that the coffin should be taken out to cottage that same afternoon. And the funeral took place on the Friday? 2.30. No flowers by request. Uh, who's got screwdriver? Oh, excuse me, sir. I, uh, I'd best assist with screws. Oh, oh yes, of course. Did you hear that, Tanner? Sorry, sir? Oh, never mind about your trousers. The Ropers had ample chance that Wednesday to take Giles out of his coffin and put the money in his place. In Inspector French. Coming, Sergeant. Right, lads. Lift, lid. I'm not looking. Well, I'll be... Good grief. Coffin's full of muck.
The money's got to be somewhere, Tanner. Somewhere out here at Starville, or I'll eat my hat. We can't search the whole of the Yorkshire Moors, sir. I suppose he could have buried it in one of those outhouses. Well, we've got to start somewhere. You take that one, I'll take this. Tanner! Tanner, come here! Yes, sir? Look at this. It's a handcart, sir. It's not the cart I want you to look at, it's this. A small piece of yellow clay? Yes, and stuck to the rim of the left wheel. And there's another piece here, look, adhering to the base of the left leg. Now, what do you deduce from that? Uh, that the cart was wheeled over a place where there was yellow clay. And also set down there. Tell me, Tanner, where have you noticed clay of this colour here in the neighbourhood? On my trousers, sir, last night at the cemetery. Yes, yes, and where is it found? Um... At a depth of three to four feet, Tanner. That's not surface soil. It follows, therefore, that this cart was wheeled across and set down at a spot where the ground had been dug up to a depth of at least three to four feet. Agreed? Yes, sir. Now then, put yourself in Roper's shoes. Time and secrecy are of the essence. You have to collect Giles's body from the cottage and bring it over here to Starville. You also have to dispose of the money you've removed from Avril's safe. You have this handcart. Now, what do you do? Well, uh, if it was me, sir, I'd load the money onto the handcart and wheel it off towards Giles's cottage. Yes. And I wouldn't go any further than I had to because of the heaviness of the load. Right. Uh, then I'd select a spot not too far off the path, sir, so my booty wouldn't be too difficult to find, nor yet too close in case someone else should come across the spot where I've been digging. Very good. And I'd dispose of my ill-gotten gains about six feet down. I'd then proceed to the cottage, collect Mr. Giles's body, load it onto the handcart, and trundle it back here to Starville. Yeah, exactly. So now we know roughly where to look. Come on, and bring that spade. Well done, Tara. <coughs> We're down to the yellow clay. Yes, sir. Uh, hello. Hmm? I found something, sir. Something uh, soft. Uh, stand aside, Rose. Let me see. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a blanket. Yes, sir. It's, it's something soft, sir. Rolled up in a blanket. It's uncommonly like a corpse. It really is an extraordinary development, French. Yes, sir. You assumed that Giles had been murdered to obtain his body for the Starville fraud. Now, if that assumption was correct, then it followed that his coffin would be empty. Yes. You opened the coffin and it was empty. It was a complete vindication of your reasoning. And then I find Giles's body buried on the moor, and I seem to be further from the truth than ever. You still believe Roper is your man? Oh, yes, sir. None of our case against Roper is negated by the discovery of Giles's body. All the facts remain. Then whose was the third body found at Starble? I have no idea, sir. The police at Thursby are now trying to discover whether anyone else disappeared at the time. No. How do you propose to track Roper down? I followed all the customary procedures, sir. I'm having his picture published in the next issue of the Police Gazette. Inquiries are being made at various seaports and with airlines to the continent. I'm even making inquiries in Brazil, since it appears to have been Roper's intention to emigrate there, but personally, I adhere to the view he's still within these shores. And still in possession of the money. Presumably, sir. 
I take it he hasn't attempted to pass any more of the notes. Not as far as we know, sir. Mm, afraid to take the risk. Mm. I wonder... I wonder if we couldn't set his mind at ease. How, sir? Well, there'll be an inquest on Giles, won't there? And the post-mortem. Uh, yes. Well, now, suppose, I... suppose, at the inquest, you were to be uh, very frank in your testimony. Suppose you were to state that only the numbers of, say, the last 20 20s were known. Mightn't that do the trick? Uh, you think Groper would get to hear of it and feel safe in changing the others? Well, it's worth a try. And if he rises to the bait... Ah, uh, Tanner... Bad news, I'm afraid. We've been taken off the case. For good? I'm sorry, Tanner. You did some good work. In fact, I'm not sure I could have managed without you. Thank you, sir. Don't take it too much to heart, sir. The trail had gone a bit cold. But it hasn't. That's just the point. Roper's finally come out of the woodwork. He's passed two of the numbered notes. When, sir? Yesterday afternoon, it would seem. The bank notified us this morning. We have no details as yet, but it appears they were paid in separately from different branches, so it looks as if he's changing them one at a time. Systematically? Mm. So we can expect more notes to come in? Yes. Everything I've worked towards is finally coming to fruition, and the case has been given to Inspector Willis. Oh, what about us, sir? Oh, we've been given something else to do. Come on. I'll tell you the story as we go, just as Chief Inspector Mitchell told it to me that about ten o'clock last night, a constable on patrol in the Whitechapel district heard cries for an entry off Cable Street, as if someone was being murdered. He ran down and found one man belabouring another with his fists. The constable stopped the fight and asked the cause of the altercation, to be told that both men claimed ownership to some jewellery they'd obtained. Jewellery? Wedding rings. Thirty-nine of them. <laughs> on a cord. Interesting. Yeah. So, the two men were marched to divisional headquarters and asked how the rings had come into their possession. Their answer was more interesting still. It appeared that the two men were Captain James Gray, skipper of a Thames lighter, and William Fuller, his crew. Our Gray stated that at about 8.30 that same evening, they'd been running down to their moorings for the night. Yeah. Well, just as they began to emerge from beneath Tower Bridge... Fuller heard a clatter on the deck beside him. Looking down, he saw some bright objects rolling about on the flanks. He picked one up and was astonished to find it was a wedding ring. Good gracious. Ah, when they reached their moorings, Fuller and Gray took a proper look with lanterns and recovered the 39 and the broken cord. Well, partners might be expected, a row broke out. Well, yeah, they, they both wanted the rings. Exactly. The row broke out again on shore. The constable came on the scene... And the rest you know. Did they have any other valuables on them? No. Just the wedding rings. Yeah. All since established as being 18 carat and retailing from between 35 shillings to two pounds. It's a good story, isn't it? Hmm? Huh? Humorous? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, why should anyone throw 39 wedding rings into the Thames? But I take it they were intended to go into the river and not onto the boat. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. You think the... Uh, the whole thing's unlikely, do you? Oh, yes, I do. Well, I don't. I think I can imagine circumstances in which a man might be anxious to get rid of 39 wedding rings. And throwing them off Tower Bridge at night seems to be a jolly good way of doing it. Just his bad luck, the lighter was passing underneath. Otherwise, the rings would have been consigned to the deep, and even if later found by some miracle, would never be traced to him. 
Well, yes, yeah, that, uh, that reasoning seems quite sound, sir. You agree, then, that the matter warrants investigation, huh? Mm. I mean, before Graham Fuller are charged with theft. Oh, certainly. Good. Off you go, then. Me, sir? Well, I don't know anyone who could do it better. Oh, take Tanner with you. Uh, but, but don't you think it's urgent that this banknote business be followed up while the trail's still warm? Oh, Inspector Willis can do that. But uh, this is a short inquiry. You'll have it finished by tomorrow. The lighter's mode of whopping. Right, Captain Fuller, so this is where you were standing when the rings came down. Yes, Governor, on this very spot. Mm, and where did the rings strike? Oh, I'd just to the foot, Governor, but I mean, it'd be about that bolthead or maybe a bit foreign. Search around, Tanner, would you? Yes, sir. If they landed around about here, they could scatter in any direction. That's if these gentlemen's story is true. Ah, it's true, sir, so help me. Oh, yeah, every last one, Governor. Got one, sir. Jam between two planks. It told you, didn't I? Let me see. It's a common or garden wedding ring, sir. Same as any other. What do we do now? Well, you keep searching, Tanner. I'm feeling a bit seasick, sir. While I go back to the yard and attempt to draft a confidential memo for circulation to every jeweller's shop in London. Well, French, what progress? Uh, we've had uh, 631 replies so far, sir. Excellent. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, and I've, I've drawn up this chart divided into columns. Yeah. As you'll see, this column, headed Robbery's Disappearance of Rings, has no entries in it as yet, while, while this one... Ah, uh, information regarding purchases, yes. Yes, which gives us details of age, height, build, with or without glasses and so on, has already provided us with some uh, very interesting facts. Oh, for instance... Well, that a man aged 40, wearing a Homburg hat and a fawn coat and with a moustache and glasses, visited four shops in the same street at almost the same hour on the same day and purchased a wedding ring from each one. Well, I'd say that was worth looking into, wouldn't you? Tanner's doing so already, sir. So, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Stanley, you remember the man very clearly? Oh, yes, sir. As you say, he was wearing a Homburg hat and a fawn coat and he had a moustache and glasses. He arrived in a taxi. The taxi waited while he purchased the ring. Then they drove off again. That sort of fixed my attention on him. At uh, what hour was that? Oh, um, about half past eleven. And so there was nothing out of the ordinary in the whole transaction, uh, no, no matter how trivial? Oh, not really. He, he had a cut on his hand. Oh? Oh, yes, it looked very nasty. Shaped like an H. Here on his right thumb. Otherwise, there was nothing out of the ordinary at all. Unless... Yes, Mr. Stanley. Well, he said he hadn't enough loose change to make up the 35 shillings. So he asked me to change a 20-pound note. A 20-pound note? This one. And the number's on our list. Ah, so that's why the chief put me onto it. He must have guessed there was a connection with the Starville case. While I, like an ass, had entirely missed its meaning. It's Roper, sir, isn't it? Of course. It's so obvious. For every ring he purchased, Roper tendered a £20 note, a tainted note, a note from the safe at Starville. And for every £20 note got rid of, he received over £18 of good, clean, untraceable money. Oh, cunning devil. Not quite cunning enough. What do we do now? Well, inquiries must be made of every jeweller, every taxi driver, at every railway station, restaurant, hotel in the centre of London. We got him, Tara. With the vast resources of the CID at our disposal, it can only be a matter of time. I was hailed by a man answering this description about ten o'clock on the morning of Tuesday last. He said he was a traveller in precious stones and gave me a list of jewellers he wished to visit. 
We started near to the Marble Arch, and he paid me off just after 1pm. The man flashed here at the Carlton on Wednesday. He had a Scottish accent and paid with a £20 note. It may be without significance, but he had a nasty cut on the thumb of his right hand, shaped rather like an H. I observed it as he drank his coffee. The Pepperell Hotel in Russell Square... Your man stayed on Thursday night. He paid his bill with a £20 note and left on foot at about 9.45am on the following morning. I picked him up at the Russell Square end of Southampton Row shortly before 10 on Friday morning and, and drove him to Gracechurch Street to a big building on the left-hand side, an office block quite salubrious, uh, stockbrokers and the like. I admit, Inspector, that the description you give does resemble that of our client, but, of course, as reputable stockbrokers, our dealings are completely confidential. The man is suspected of having committed three murders, Mr. Dashwood. Ah. Well, that alters the matter. What do you wish to know? First, your client's name and address. Ah, yes, just one moment, please. I'll need to consult the ledger. Was he an established client? No, I had never seen him before. And what was his business? He wished us to purchase some stock for him. Did he pay for it? Uh, yes, he paid in advance. Ah, yes, here we are. In notes of ten pounds and less in value. Yes, that's right. Mm. He seemed a peculiar way of doing things, but he explained he was a bookmaker, so I... Ah, yes, yes. He gave his name as Mr. Arthur Lyle Whitman, care of Mr. Andrew MacDonald, 18 Murray Street, Pentland Avenue, Edinburgh. In what stock were you to invest, Mr. Dashwood? Brazilian. Ah. Yes. The dividends to be paid to an account with the Bayra Bank at Rio. Mr. Whitman said he would be sailing in a few weeks. Needless to say, sir, 18 Murray Street turned out to be an accommodation address. A small tobacconist's with a rather shady reputation. Have you put a watch on it? Uh, no, sir, but I think I found another way of rooting Roper out. I sent this telegram purporting to come from the stockbrokers. Mm. Serious fall in Brazilian stock impending. Would suggest an interview. Bounce travels to Aberdeen by 10 a.m. from King's Cross Tuesday. Could you see him at Waverley Station, Edinburgh, where a train waits from 6.15 to 6.35? Dashwood and Munts. Yes. And uh, this Mr. Munts, is he game to play out the scene? Tanner will go in his place, sir. And since none of us has actually seen Roper face to face, I've telephoned Dr. Philpot. He's agreed to be present to make the necessary identification. The train's about to leave, Inspector. Yes. He's not coming, is he? Damn. Oh, I'm not sure I'm not relieved, frankly. Oh? Knowing Roper, he'd have been bound to make trouble for me if I'd assisted in his capture. Sorry, sir. Looks like he was too good for us this time. There'll be another time, Tanner, never fear. Dr. Philpott, I apologise for bringing you out here on a... Wild goose chase. Not at all. Uh, perhaps you'd join us in a parting drink. Cheers. Ah. 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 Oh, thank heavens they've got a good fire going in here. I'm beginning to feel my toes again. Oh, me too. It was freezing on that platform. I don't really need my muffler and gloves. Tell me, Inspector. How did you come to suspect Roper? I'm really most impressed. Actually, sir, it's a very interesting story involving wedding rings. One moment, Tanner, please. Dr. Philpott, that cut on the thumb of your right hand. What about it? A 
similar cut was seen on the hand of a man wearing glasses and a moustache who purchased wedding rings all over London and paid for each one with a £20 note. I would advise you not to move, either of you. He's got a hand grenade! From which, as you can see, I have removed the pin. It's fitted with the customary four-second fuse, so if I release the clip, one... Two, three, four, and everybody in here dies. Stand behind the tables, everybody, please. But nobody leaves. No panic. Just take whatever you can. What now, Dr. Philpott? <laughs> you think you're clever, don't you? Yet you were wrong all the time. Roper didn't have the brain to plan a crime on the scale of Starville or the courage to carry it out. But you did. Oh, yes. It was I who got the Ropers to Starville as soon as I heard of Simon Averill's hoard. The whole plan was already in my mind. To murder all three of them? Of course. Roper and his wife had witnessed the unfortunate demise of my poor wife. They had to die or there'd be the risk of further blackmail. You offered Roper a share of the spoils to be divided between the two of them. But Roper having realized he'd made a mistake in his marriage, saw the opportunity of getting rid of his wife at the same time as Simon Averill. The same accident accounting for both deaths. Yes. He never for a moment suspected that he was to meet the same fate, but cooperated cheerfully every step of the way. We throttled Averill and Mrs. Roper and laid them in the beds. Then we packed the contents of the safe in two dispatch cases, one for Roper and one for me. Bunned newspapers in the safe, locked it, and replaced the key under Averill's pillow. Then we poured petrol over the house, ready to be set alight at the proper moment. And Markham Giles? Oh, that was the next step. Of course, uh, Roper had already disposed of the poor chap with an overdose of cocaine injected into the heart, <laughs> believing that Giles's remains were later to be found in the ruins of Starville and mistaken for his own. You took the handcart from the outhouse? wheeled it over to Giles's cottage, removed the body from the coffin, replaced it with an equivalent weight of soil, wheeled the body back to Starville and laid it in Roper's bed. Exactly so, Inspector. At which point, Roper's usefulness was at an end. I had secreted a large knife in my pocket. He died in seconds. But the house now contained four bodies. Of which only three must be found. Uh, so, once more, with the use of the handcart... You took Giles's body to a nearby spot and buried it. And then I transferred Roper's share of the money to my own dispatch case, set fire to the house, and returned unseen to Thursby, all according to plan. Brilliantly conceived. Perfectly executed. You won't get away, Dr. Philpot. Oh, I have no intention of trying. This is to make a swift end of things for all concerned. Get him, Tanner, quickly. No. Falls! Ah! Uh, me! Falls! Uh, Falls! Uh, 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 so much for Dr. Philpot. Promotion, sir? Yes, both of you. I shall put in a strong recommendation. Huh. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, sir. No, it's no more than you deserve. You've brought to book a man who killed five times. You've recovered the Avril fortune. 
It's a magnificent achievement. Perspiration rather than inspiration, sir. Also, I owe a great deal to you and Tanner here. Oh, sir. We made a formidable team. Mm. French. Sir? There are still one or two details. Uh, yes, sir? Well, Phil Potts forged confession to the murder of his wife. It wasn't a forgery, in fact. Roper insisted on a confession, and Philpot had to provide one. But Philpot wrote it, painstakingly, upside down. Good yeah. heavens. Which, which produced a passable imitation of his own writing, but one which an expert would recognise as a forgery. Oh. And the gambling? Was yet another subterfuge. By going through the bankruptcy courts, he hoped to dispel any suggestion that he'd recently come into money. It also gave him a reasonable excuse for quitting Thursby. The problem was, it left him very short of cash, so he was forced to draw on Avril's money, specifically to transfer a nest egg to Brazil. All along, he'd intended to emigrate there. Ingenious. Oh, yes. Yes, he, he paid immense attention to detail. He'd even persuaded Roper to obtain a Brazilian visa, which Philpott then cleverly inserted into his own passport, made out in the name of Arthur Lyle Whitman. He'd left absolutely nothing to chance. Well, he'll pay for his crimes with his life. It's a grim business, sir. Hanging. It's justice. And there's no question the world will be a better place without him. Well, now, French, the happier things. You're taking your well-earned breather, I understand. Oh, yes, sir. I'm going up to Yorkshire. Yorkshire? Thursby, sir. I've been invited to a wedding. <laughs> was Inspector French and the Starbell Tragedy, dramatised by Alan Downer from the novel by Freeman Wells Crofts, with Edward de Souza as Inspector French and Jonathan Tapler as Detective Constable Tanner. Chief Inspector Mitchell was played by Reginald Marsh, Sergeant Kent by Alan Downer, Pierce Wimper by Gary Cady, Dr. Philpott by Michael Deacon, Ruth Avril by Zella Clark, Mrs. Oxley by Joe Matheson, and Mrs. Palmer Gore by Diana Olson. John Badley played Dashwood, Alan Dudley, the manager of Thomas Cook's, William Simons, Mr. Stanley, and Michael Tudor Barnes, the landlord of the inn. Inspector French and the Starbell Tragedy was directed by David Johnston.